everybody, welcome to episode 24 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra. I'm here in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Aaron Bay in Whitby. Hello. And I'm also joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hey, everybody. So uh, one of the things we want to talk about this week is uh, an article that was posted by Jaime last uh, um, couple weeks ago on an approach that Betty Crocker had to creating uh, recipes. They found that um, they changed up the way that they uh, they formulated their recipes and people felt uh, better about it. They got better results. So does somebody want to jump in and carry that ball in that Super Bowl metaphor? So so onboarding, uh, at least for me, has always been one of the the biggest issues and and most you know most contentious issues uh, when building an app. And, and the, the basic idea is how do you get people into your app, new users into your app? Uh, and it's it's you know it's a difficult problem because mm-hmm. you have to figure out a way to get them in pretty you know easily and smoothly without a lot of you know difficulty because you don't want them getting frustrated and going away, but yet you want to get information out of them uh, you know and, and have them sign up for an account or something like that. Uh, and it's always been sort of the uh, the rule of thumb that you make the onboarding just as dead simple as possible because if someone has to look at more than one or two screens or if it takes more than a few seconds, they're they're pretty likely to just drop off and, and they're gone. Uh, but this article had kind of an interesting different take on that and and they made an analogy to, to Betty Crocker <clears throat> uh, back in the early days of, of making instant cakes. Uh, apparently, the, the first version of the Betty Crocker cake mix was just everything you needed was in the box. It was just all the, the powder was it. And you just mixed it with water and you baked it and you were done. Yeah, just add water. Yep. Just add water. Mm-hmm. And they found out when they did their testing that people actually didn't like that very much. Uh, they actually preferred to use a flow where they where they had to add an egg or add milk or, or add something even though the you know at the at the end the, the cake tasted exactly the same and, and the the conclusion was that that uh, they actually felt like they were baking if they had to add some extra ingredients and otherwise they, they didn't so they kind of had to get some skin in the game and that and that brought them into it and then made them more of a part of the process and more interested in in uh, doing it again and, and continuing uh, and so so the article says that you know we can apply that to onboarding uh, and he gave a, a couple of examples of of a, of a really really nice you know simple easy onboarding that he used for one of his apps that failed miserably, uh, and only when it made, when he made it a little bit more mm-hmm. difficult, that's when people started using it. So it's it's a pretty interesting thing. It's very counterintuitive. Um, one thing I'm interested in everyone's opinion is is how does it apply to Mobile. I, I can very much see how, for you know, like a, a business-to-business type of thing, or or something where where people expect to have to you know put in some information because they're 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 really getting something big out of it. Uh, that this might make sense, but for an app, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think that creating an app is a process of getting the user to invest their time in it, and. It's very difficult for users to add something new to their lives. So when they adopt an app to use on their phone, they're kind of committing to it. 
Um, so on the one hand, you want to make that process as easy as, as possible for users because if there's a thousand apps out there, they've got to pick the one that's right for them and they don't want to spend a lot of time evaluating different options. So there's that common sense notion that you should just get them in as quickly as possible and get them working with your app as soon as possible, get them figuring it out how to use the damn thing. But the point that he's making here and one that I have seen actually many times is uh, kind of using like a guided tour metaphor, if you will, to take them through how the app works. And I think a good example of that is is an app that um, lets you manage a collection of things, you know, like, um, say, a list uh, where you might add an item and it'll guide you through the first step of adding an item. Like, here's how easy it is. Type something in here, such as go to the store to pick up milk, hit this button to enter the item. That was awesome. Good work. And in the process of teaching you that during that first run experience, you've begun using the app. I think that's what the author of this column is is trying to illustrate. And for one, I think it's a great idea. I've got the app that I'm working on right now actually uh, has has this problem. It's kind of complicated, and there's a, a bit of setup involved in getting it to work properly. So I'm going to need to pay special attention to the onboarding process. Um, and I think I'm going to use a technique like this to sort of guide them through how it's done. Yeah, it's a common metaphor in, in gaming when, you know, the... the in order to get you to, to understand how the game works, um, you, they start you off on a simpler sort of flow. And, they, and part of the onboarding in, the, in, in games is they'll, they'll show you a couple little techniques that you need to learn. And then as you progress through the game and, you know, they will reward you and give you the pat on the back, the sort of grandmother support mechanism with the stars and, and you, you know, give you, congratulate you for the amount of time it took you to solve this really complex problem. Then they move you on to a more complex task, so, you know, create more obstacles for you. And I think that, that that sort of gets, you know, when you're playing a game, whether you're a child or an adult, you know, that sort of gets you more involved in the game. And you sort of, I guess you can also decide whether or not you want to continue on with the, with the process in terms of learning the new skills. And that's kind of sort of where he's coming from in that and similar with what Mark was saying about you know having the task of adding the egg and beating the the mix in the Betty Crocker example made you feel like you were actually baking a cake you know um, I I have no problem telling you that I was the kid at home that used to make you know like to work do the cakes for my mom because I got to play with the beaters you know um, but that was you know then I didn't really feel like I was you know doing the joy of cooking and preparing turkeys, but I was making cakes, and that was something that you know you felt a, you felt a certain amount of accomplishment. And there's a there's a I've forgotten there's a, a I think one of Malcolm Gladwell's books he talks about um, a situation where they were trying to teach um, kids in, in in an underprivileged environment how to use computers, and what they did was they put a computer in a wall and with just access to the keyboard and, and the monitor. And they let the kids play on the internet. And what they did was they, they um, got some older kids, older girls to volunteer to stand beside the kids and act like the grandmother and sort of, you know, give them that encouragement. Sort of what Aaron was just saying in his, you know, hey, way to go. You did a good job. What else can you show me kind of stuff? And it actually gets the person who's participating more involved in, in the task. And I think, you know, I've worked on a lot of onboarding stuff where people try to make it so dead simple that it actually becomes difficult, you know, for people to really engage. You get, I think we probably all experience it. You get a lot of downloads from people with your apps, but 
it seems like they come in, they look at the app, and then they they take off. Maybe if you have to, if they have, maybe they have to create an account. They don't want to create an account, or if they have to create an account, they go and they poke around for a bit, and then they they leave. And you get engagement out of a very small amount of people who actually are using using your app at the end of the day. So I think if you make it too simple, it's too difficult. Yeah, I, I do think it's kind of interesting that so many people are talking about these contrasting kind of th- notions where we want this app to be as frictionless as possible, but we also describe the app as we want it to be as sticky as possible. And I would say you can't have, you know, stickiness without some friction, right? And I think that's kind of funny enough the way that, that this article went. And I think it's interesting that you brought up the, the video games. So I'm definitely a huge fan of games that teach you how to play the game by having you actually play the game, right? Um, there's definitely some good stuff I've seen uh, analyzing um, Super Mario Brothers for the Nintendo and uh, Mega Man X for the Super NES. And in, in terms of like going forward for you know, what should my app do, I think it will depend on you know what kind of app do you have. So in, in this case of one sheet that um, you know Mr. Mulligan is talking about here, um, it's a smaller audience in general, right? Not not everybody's a musician, not everybody has a band, so it's it's not as broad of a a category as something like a Facebook or an Instagram, and it may or may not be as obvious to them what the benefit is, uh, you know, in general versus you know some other competitor product, um, as opposed to something like let's say like an Instagram, right? Instagram doesn't really need much of an onboarding experience because it's immediately useful, even if you don't have any friends whatsoever in the app, right? You can take pictures of your food, take pictures of yourself, and it's right there in a nice, easily digestible format. And if you drop your phone in the toilet, those pictures are still there. Just go get another phone and be done with it. (laughs) But something like a one sheet, like it takes a lot of like actual investment to get anything even vaguely useful out of it. So it kind of makes sense to not have it be a, a one and done type of thing, but like, Hey, well, let me really get invested in this, you know, emotionally. And then I'll be more likely to stay around and see what this has to offer. And, yeah. As Mark said, once you have skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Pinterest is probably somewhere in between from what I've seen. So at least on iOS, um, they teach you how to use the whole, you know, pinning, uh, pinning items and even what the, the, the concept and point is of pinning an item. When you first sign up, it, says, hey, see this pin here or see this item here? Tap here to pin it. Great. Now you've added it to a board. Oh, okay. Not only are you somewhat more invested of like, okay, well, I've actually accomplished something, but you learned about what the heck is this product even about? That's kind of a nice little happy medium, I think, for a a much broader community and yet at the same time trying to um, bring you on board and get you emotionally invested. There are a lot of apps that have this onboarding experience and um, some people do it better than others. So the kind of, I think there's been a a backlash against certain onboarding experiences that are more like slideshows, you know, that are non-interactive, basically a, uh, a a deck that's a tour, like slide through this carousel and we'll show you the three things you need to know about this app. And I think that a lot of developers and people who think about apps have, have stepped away from that approach. But uh, I, I don't want to be too hasty to uh, dismiss this approach, though, because what we're actually talking about is something very different. It's not a static presentation of, of instructions. It's not copywriting um, or technical writing. This is, this is an interactive process. 
where you get the user to participate in using the app at the very start. Um, and I think that's a lot different than your standard onboarding process, which is just a slideshow. Yeah, nobody wants to sit around for a PowerPoint deck. Yeah. Another thing I'm, I'm glad to see has fallen out of favor <laughs> is the, the transparent overlay with arrows pointing to things. Uh, Chapel does quite a bit of <laughs> the yeah, coach marks. Yeah. yeah. When I see those, I, I immediately just dismiss that thing, and I think probably most people do too. And, and totally pay any attention to it. It's a riot, you know. That's like I mean, a riot to the eyes. Seeing yeah. all that stuff, it, it overwhelms the senses. I, I mm-hmm, want to get rid of mm-hmm. it just to get it out of my face, and don't want to read it for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now you mentioned Apple, but I, I think Apple is famous for having pretty much no. Uh, onboarding for a lot of their stuff, even some of the more complicated right. things yeah. like like uh, GarageBand, for example. Now it's been a while well, since I since I installed that, so it might have changed. But I remember when that thing first came out, there was just nothing. You were just thrown into this very complicated and very powerful tool with with no guidance whatsoever. You had to go, <laughs> you know, you had to go search on Google and how do I use GarageBand to to even get started? You're right. I was thinking about iPhoto for iOS. Mm. Um, which I think is maybe the first time they did that sort of coach mm-hmm. mark thing. Mm. Um, and I've, I've kind of conflated it in my, in my mind <laughs> because it's such a, a glaring example, uh, especially, you know, on the iPad or the iPhone. Actually, it's the same way. It's just you've got a button that you can toggle this mode on. Um, I don't know. Has anyone used iPhoto for iOS lately? Uh, um, lately. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah, I, I'm yeah. actually just opening it now. It seems, seems like it's gone, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, it didn't it didn't, even didn't have it, it discontinued and migrated to what? something else? iPhoto? Yeah, I think it I think it got taken off the off the device. It's not a I had it on my I'm sure I have it here somewhere. Here it says migrate migrate data from iPhoto to photos. It says iPhoto is not supported on iOS eight. Your photos and image adjustments will be preserved mm. in photos. So they've obviously yeah. moved that functionality yeah. over to the photos app. Just like they did with Keynote. The Keynote used to have a remote and now yeah. they put the remote function right inside Keynote. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, so my, my thinking on that is out of date, but they were still damn guilty of it <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe that's why it didn't but there's do no well. way of proving it now. Yeah, exactly. That's the worst part. I actually did use it for a while. I, I don't know. I never found it that useful. I, I remember when it came out and I of course got it and tried it out, but, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not a big photos guy. Uh, I just find I don't really use any kind of, uh, photo management app. Yeah, the, well, the app I use for photo editing is, is PS Express, which is Photoshop Express. And so, like, if I'm taking a shot or something and I want to crop it before I put it up on Twitter or whatever or do some correction on it, I'll generally open it up in Photoshop Express. And, and, yeah, uh, on your Mac, you mean? No, I find the Photos app limited. No, right on right on the device. On iOS? It's called PS Express. It's from Adobe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's much much better editing editing uh, images, for sure. Okay. Well, it's interesting that we're talking about this uh, this sort of um, onboarding thing because I think that's kind of uh, there, there's two types of markets. I mean, there's one one that you just want to try to create an app for everybody, and you want it, and other markets where you're creating a Mac or an app for a specific group, so you're targeting in such a way. Like in the case of this one sheet, was targeting uh, musicians, and there was a bit of discussion um, brought brought. Out on the on the web by uh, Charles Perry when he wrote a, a blog post on his Medikite site, and then they talked a bit about it on, on um, uh, release notes this week as well. But I thought it was interesting that that uh, looking at how um, 
Charles did some analysis of the App Store and how he took the the numbers that were exposed a couple of weeks ago that we talked about with Marco's numbers and um, <clears throat> the other ones were Monument Valley and but he wrote a piece on it called The Shape of the App Store and that kind of opened up a couple of other people took some other perspectives on it so can we talk about that in terms of what's going on in the App Store and I think this is a really good news article personally um, you know I'm not one to normally uh, be feeling optimistic about App Store news, really, or an analysis about the App Store and the prospects of making money on it. But I really liked what this had to say because um, I think in, in, on the one hand, it, it sort of validates what we know about the App Store and that it's a hits-driven business and there's uh, a very relatively few number of apps at the top of the list that make most of the money. Um, sort of the core of, of Charles Perry's article here is a graph that shows this this kind of uh, reverse hockey stick, would you call it? I don't know. A hockey stick that faces the wrong way. And um, where the it, it angles up at the top and... Yeah, he it, calls it, it bent elbow. A bent elbow. Okay, well, you know, yeah, okay, fair enough. So it starts <laughs> off up with up to, it says $20,000 of daily revenue at the very top. So like the number one grossing app is doing that every day, 20K. Um, and it, it drops precipitously as you uh, decrease in rank. Um However, the I thought the interesting thing is that the tail, the long tail, if you will, uh, still has quite a bit of money, I think. Not necessarily interesting money for large companies, but for independent developers, the people that you and I care most about, uh, I think it still does contain a fair amount of interesting money. So one, one line here in, in Perry's column is that, I don't know why he pulled out position 871, but... On position 871 of the U.S. top grossing list, an app still makes over $700 in revenue per day, which is great. <laughs> I think we would all love to make $700 a day every day, even on the weekends. But I think that the point is, is that if you're in the top 1,000 apps and you're an independent software developer, you can, you can make a living doing this business, which I think is really encouraging. And it's uh, something that people can kind of take with them because... Although there are over a million apps in the store, uh, 1.2 by the count I see here, um, it's <laughs> how to say this. It's definitely possible, I think, to break the 1,000 mark. It feels like it is anyway. Whether it actually is or not is another question altogether. I'm really not too surprised by by the article. I'm encouraged too, but I'm not really surprised. I mean, this is a classic you know power law long tail kind of distribution i mean this is this is amazon's business model in a picture right um if you have if you have a very low inventory cost then you can keep everything around forever and even if there's only one in a million people is interested in this one particular thing and and that one particular item only makes a dollar a day or whatever uh by having so many items uh, you still make money off of it, and and uh, look at Amazon. I mean, they're hugely successful, and look at the App Store; they're they're hugely successful at the same for the same reason. Um, in fact, when I first started started getting into this whole thing, this was my whole business plan, and I think a lot of people had the same one: was just make as many apps as possible and get them out there, and and uh, and it adds up over time. Now, you know, things have changed, and and I've moved on to different things, but. But I think it's a pretty valid uh, plan, and, and, it, and it works. As long as your apps don't take too much effort to make, 
and sure. are interesting to some people. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yep. You know, I think of the example of uh, David Smith. He's a developer that, at least at one point, had a ton of apps. Um, he's the maker of uh, Feed Wrangler, but uh, in his previous incarnations uh, testing the App Store, he's had many, many, many apps. Uh, many of them based around audiobooks, for example, where he he made scores of apps uh, based on different audiobooks and and marketed specifically to those niches. But uh, I don't know how well that worked out for him, but because he's moved on to other things, right? <laughs> so yep. um, I, I, I understand the premise behind making lots of apps, uh, but at the same time, I think they've got to be good apps before I would put my name on them and put them on the app store. So yeah, absolutely. there's sort of a balance that needs to be struck, right? Yep. Um, I would say if you could have, you know, <laughs> say two or three apps that were, that were good quality – and that you were building over a course of years, for example, or or maybe one a year, I think that's a pace that I could take. Well, but, and it may be it, that may be a good strategy, but there's a lot of risk in that too. Because if you it, what if you build the wrong app and nobody cares, then you've yeah. spent a year and you have this one thing that you're stuck with, and and it may be the best you know best of that type that it was ever made, but. You know, only eight people on the planet care about that thing, and then then uh, you're not making it. You don't have a business, so there's definitely balance there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the alternative, like we we saw Justin Williams some time ago. I think it was Justin Williams who said that um, if give yourself three months, I think. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Three months right. to make an app, and uh, if you can't do it, then in that kind of time, then don't bother. You know, and I, 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 I suppose that's fair advice. Digging into the into the article, um, uh, there was a, a link back to Stratechery. There's another chart that's very similar to what Charles's chart looks like, and that you know, it, it's it seems that niche businesses are more likely to pay a higher price uh, for a product. You know, and obviously there's going to be less people in that niche, so so it behooves you to charge a bit more. Whereas if you're hitting uh, a lot of customers with low pricing, like Mark was just saying with Amazon, then then that makes sense to use a, a model like that, where you can you can afford to have a lot of distribution, lot low cost items, um, or even free if if your target is to get a lot of customers, you know. Um, and and there's a big there's a sort of fine balance, and, and I think we talked about this a bit on the show that that uh, and it's come up in other podcasts as well that it actually does behoove you if you make a product that that's that's a good product that. Has a fits fills a niche that um, has a specific type of need. Um, why make it you know ninety nine cents? Make it you know ten bucks or make it twenty bucks because you know you're more likely to, to satisfy the need of fewer people. And why cheapen your product in order to, to sort of get more downloads? And sort of where I was trying to do the correlation between the previous topic we were just talking about with the with the onboarding rather than trying to get everybody to, to love your app by having su- such a simple onboarding process maybe by making things a little bit more challenging i mean not super challenging just a little bit more challenging you get more investment from your users yeah it makes complete sense i mean certainly for for a niche app if you have a if you have a person looking for an app to do the thing that your app does then they're they're definitely going to have more uh, willingness to pay a higher price. They're going to have more willingness to invest a little bit of their time into the onboarding uh, because they were looking for that app. 
as opposed to, you know, if you have, if you have the next, I don't know, next candy crush or something like that, um, then there's a million things just like it out there. And, and you're looking for that customer as opposed for that customer looking for you. So in that case, yeah, you gotta, you gotta have the easy onboarding and you gotta have the low price. Well, Mark, you had you had an app, um, Scales and Modes, which which yeah. I would think is sort of a niche product because yeah, very much we so. talked about it on the show before, and it's basically a, a it's a, a an app that explains different um, modes in terms of um, how music is uh, written, um, right. and it has this particular market. And I think you've you've had it featured a few times, and, and your yeah. success numbers are good in that yeah. app arena, right? Can you talk yep. a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's an app that really appeals to uh, students of music, uh, or, you know, maybe classical musicians or jazz musicians who are, who are trying to get a, a sense of this pretty, pretty complicated, uh, large set of data, you know, how there, there's, you know, there's 12 notes in the, in the, that, that exists and they can be assembled in many, many different ways. And the way that you assemble them, you know, determines how the, how the song or how the scale is, is going to sound. So, and there's you know the really complicated harmony rules that go along with that. So so if you're serious about writing a symphony, let's say you know you got to know you got to know what all these things are. And if you want to do it in an obscure key or or something like that, then then you need this information. Uh, so people who want to do that kind of thing, or jazz musicians are another thing. They they like to do all these very complicated scales. People who really want to do this thing need a tool or want a tool to help them do it. So, so those people just were naturally attracted to this app and, and, and love it. And, and it's the kind of thing where, yeah, not, not everybody loves it. Not everybody, you know, needs it, but the people who do need it and people who do use it, they love it. Uh, so, so Mark, what do you think about raising the price? It's only two yeah, bucks. It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, you know, the, the truth is I haven't thought about that in some time, and maybe I should rethink that because it's done pretty well at the $2 price level. Uh, but, you know, it's it's quite possible that I could have made another 50% of revenue if I had, if it had been two ninety nine because probably uh, the same people would have bought it. it it's, it's absolutely true. Why not nine ninety nine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not joking I don't know. here. That's yeah, very no, serious. I, it's, it's true. I don't, I don't know. Um, my, my feeling, my just my intuitive feeling, and it, it's nothing more than that, is that might be too high a price point because a lot of the users are students and things like that. And there's probably sticker shock associated with a nine ninety nine price point, which which is unfortunate but true. Uh, but not not untestable either. It's it's definitely not untestable. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I could flick a switch tomorrow and see what happens. Maybe I will. As well, Mark, this app has also been picked up and, and featured on, with the educational discount. So if you had, you know, kicked it up a couple of bucks, you might have made a few extra than you wouldn't have otherwise. Because, you know, at one ninety nine, when it gets discounted, it's going to go down to like ninety nine cents or even less yeah. for the for the education market, right? Not sure if the education yep, market doesn't need a break, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah it's true. Uh, you know, all right, that it's it's challenge accepted. Uh, I'll do an experiment. All right, Mark, good. I'll report back next week. See what happens. Are these are these college students, Mark? Uh, not... Yes, uh, co- high school and college students. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I ah, ten bucks. Come on. I mean, yeah, I'm not when gonna... I was in university, yeah, gonna... I was paying hundreds of dollars for books every year. You know, so yeah. what's ten bucks for an app that really helps you do your your job? Yeah. True. 
Yeah. Anyway, so it was a good good example of of a, of, an, of a case like right in our backyard of of an app that that perhaps you know has a special niche niche market, and rather than being you know, like we all sort of think, oh, it should be 99 cents. I actually saw a talk by Andy Anako in um, 2010, believe it or not, where he was, he was uh, talking about to developers about what we should charge for our apps. And he, he sort of said, you know, if you're not sure, and that was, you know, early, early days of the, of the app store. It was like maybe two or three, two or three years into it. And he was sort of saying, if your app is, um, you know, worthwhile, and you're not sure. He said the sweet spot was two ninety nine to four ninety nine, and that was back, you know, two thousand ten. Like I said, um, and you know, but if it was good, like an Omni app, then I'd certainly charge you know forty or fifty dollars for it. But it it would have to be of that quality. But um, if you make it ninety nine cents, then people don't really take it seriously. But if you make it a couple of bucks, or even you know two ninety nine, four ninety nine, people will sort of see it as an app that actually has some serious merit. And why else would you be charging what you're charging, right? And again, mm-hmm. the people you know who don't want to pay that extra few bucks to support you as an independent developer, they don't need to be your customer. I might have seen that same talk. Was it at MacWorld a few years back? No, it was at a, it was at. Um, the Voices That Matter conference in Seattle that I went to. Oh, okay. And he was okay. he was the closing speaker. I think I might I, mean, I think I might have actually uh, sent you a link to the video on it. Well, yeah, there, back again back in early days. This is probably you know also 2010. I, I also attended a talk and and the takeaway was yeah if you know the 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 thinking is you make it 99 cents and you'll sell a million of them and you know that really doesn't work too well. Uh, but if you it, it, no. There's a perception of quality if you raise the price a little bit, and and he actually showed real data of experiments he had done where if you raise the price a little bit, mm. you get you get more return because you get you know you, you actually get uh, maybe you don't get double the downloads if you double the price, but it's enough that you still get you still make more mm-hmm. uh, more profit off of it, and th- and that's actually when I raised my prices from ninety nine cents to a dollar ninety nine for a lot of these apps. Double your price and lose half of your audience. You're at the same spot. Exactly. Yeah, and you don't quite lose half your audience, so you that's come true. out ahead. That's true. Yep. 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 Um, do you get a lot of feedback on these apps from from users? I used to get a lot of feedback. I used to get a lot of suggestions, and I implemented a lot of suggestions. Um, there, you know, every once in a while, you'd, you'd have a report of a bug or something like that, and, and always, of course, act on those quickly. Mm. Um, but um, you know, I, I got some on scales and modes. I got some pretty good feedback in the in the uh, App Store review process. I mean, I, there was one professor who was saying that he would recommend it to all his students and make it, you know, make it required for his for mm-hmm. his students in his class and things like that. So, yeah, it's always nice to get feedback like that. I actually went to a uh, to, to see a guitar teacher about taking some classes from him, and I pulled out scales and modes and showed it to him, and he, he thought it was a pretty good app. So, oh, thanks. There you go. Yeah. So that was one sale that I'm credited for. Yeah. <laughs> All right, your commission check is in the mail. <laughs> I'm taking credit for it, though. Just like I'm taking credit for the uh, app, uh, the Apple Watch announcement. You're counting your tickets before they I'm hatch, man. we got to see that actually happen. There's a lot of ambiguity as to <laughs> what really shipping so, in April. A, well, so so Tim and I were having a little bit of this conversation about like he's like, oh, yay! I was like, well, hold on, what did we actually say in the prior episode? And shipping in April is not the same yeah. as at least what I was putting my mark in the sand was right. I, I think I'm With still what? off. So I said March 10th, mm-hmm. right? The second Tuesday yeah, in, in yeah. March. 
thinking that, oh, they'll have the event. Ordering will happen on Friday, and then the following Friday will be in everybody's hands. Um, Do you think there will be an event? It doesn't have to be a huge one. Just like, hey, here's what we did. That's pretty good. Order your stuff on Friday. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm more inclined to think that it's just going to be an announcement. That, hey, go ahead and start ordering. We've done our event now. We've shown you the Apple Watch. Now you can get it. Mm. Uh, I don't think they're going to have like a town hall meeting and invite all the journalists. Um, that, that's just a guess on my part. I mean, I, remember, I'm Ooh. the guy that was way wrong thinking February, right? So <laughs> don't listen <laughs> to me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when I when I talked to you guys about this last week, I, I think, uh, yeah, if, if it's April, then uh, I think whoever chose April, and that was not, nobody, <laughs> wins this pool. <laughs> so Price is it'll right be rules. April 30th. <laughs> Closest without going Who over. Knows? Closest without going over. I think that's a good rule. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so like what? Uh, what do you think? The, the 28th or the 21st of April? Maybe the 21st. Something like that. That I had... I had mentioned that uh, the iPad was released on April 4th because I, I remember the day we all had to drive down iPad the bus to get them. Not that Tuesday. we do, would do that. We did that. iPad, I did that. yeah. Mm-hmm. I drove to Buffalo. Yeah, no, very, very many of us did that. All right, so once again, let's go around the table like we usually do, and we'll see if anybody has any picks. And Jaime, do you have a pick? I do. And it's called materialpalette.com. And it's a web-based tool. Um predicated around you know google's material design that we talked about you know a few times in the in the podcast it's a you know mm. it's a design language for you know how are you going to build build your apps have some consistency get a lot of like really good looking apps you know sort of out of the box for free just using the standard uh, tools or standard components um and in this case there's a tool here that you can use to you know it's quite simple. It, it gives you a palette of colors. And I think these are like the main ones that, that Google recommends from its design docs. And you just click two colors. For example, you might want to see what does purple look like, or I should say deep purple with teal. And it shows you a preview of what that would look like. And if you squint a little bit, you can kind of imagine an iOS app looking like this with the same kind of color scheme, you know, hero image. And what's your primary color? What's your light primary color? What's your primary text, secondary text, accent color? So if you're somebody like me who does not have a BFA or a Bachelor of Fine Arts, um, and I know nothing about color theory other than <laughs> the baby pants kind of color theory that I got back in middle school, uh, this is helpful. It's like, oh, I can create something that looks reasonably good pretty simply. So you're a big fan of Android and the material design stuff? I'm a big I mean... fan of the material design. I'm not a, too much of a fan of Android. Hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of a weird, um, a weird like, keep my enemies close kind of thing. Friends close. <laughs> I know you tweet yeah. a lot about Android development. So whenever you come across tools and uh, articles that, that you find interesting, you tend to tweet them uh, a bit. Um, so have you tried Android development? Nothing beyond some of like the simplest Hello World kind of applications way back in 2011, before I had decided okay. to go down the route of iOS, before I chose uh, truth, justice in the American way. Ah, uh, the American way. It's my favorite way. It's really the only way. Uh, that's cool. You know, I look at material design, and um, to me, it, it just doesn't uh, zing, you know? You know how you see a design pattern that, that just, like, sings out to you, and this just doesn't really do it for me. I don't know, and I don't know what it is. Purely subjective. I'm just throwing it out there for no reason at all. I just uh, don't really get 
material design. It just doesn't doesn't work. Well, I think that's a fair criticism because it's not it's not great design. It's good enough design because if you look at things like say just just go look at Google Play and compare just random like top apps and you're like man these are garbage <laughs> they look terrible yeah right but if you're looking at it from a an ios you know apple design award winning kind of apps and all these wonderful things like monument valley and threes like that's so unheard of on the android side like you it's a a rare opportunity to have an app like that uh, and here's it, how i'll put it yeah um like the way i think of it is <laughs> this if you're a lover of android just turn your podcast off now i'll wait <laughs> All right. Yeah, so step away from the computer. Step away from the computer. Um, Android design is a bad situation, right? And so Google came up with material design as a way of creating a, a good minimum standard that everybody could use, right? And it's it's very generic looking. You know, of late, Google has updated all their iOS apps to adopt their material design practices. And they have a certain sameness about them. Um, I dare say the word I would use is boringness about them. So that's kind of what I think of when I, when I see material design. I see, okay, so we've created a, a, a very generic looking user interface that anybody can adopt. And the result is something that's just not terribly interesting. But at least doesn't look like crap. I'll give you that. Mm -hmm. It depends on your design goals. It, it, it sucks less than the last time is improvement. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that is not high praise. Not high praise at all. Oh, man, I'm going to hear so, about this yeah. so much. When, I, when the Android guys in the office hear this, I'm going to hear about it so much. That's great. Oh, yeah. I, I apologize to all of you. I don't want to offend anyone's feelings, but... You know, this, like I said, purely subjective. It's my my feeling on it, and uh, you know, take it for what it's worth, which probably isn't that much. And Aaron, do you have a pick? You know, the only pick I might have really is uh, something that we haven't talked about tonight, which is Apple's quarterly results. Oh, then by oh, all yeah. means, yeah. There's eighteen million, eighteen billion reasons why you should bring that up. Eighteen billion reasons. The only thing I I think that was well, there were a lot of interesting things, but one thing that stood out, of course, is the eighteen billion dollars making. Apple's quarter, the largest quarter ever recorded by any company in human history. In human history, the most money amassed mm -hmm. in a single quarter in a single three months. They're doomed. Is, you know, they're doomed. I grant you, it's arbitrary. Yeah. Um, I one of the things I was reading today about it was was a supposition by someone that the cult of Apple doom people <laughs> is actually more insidious and you, insane. <laughs> than the cult of, of, of Apple fans, supporters, if you will. That it's, it's insane now to think of Apple as a company in trouble or threatened mm -hmm. by anyone when the amount of money that Apple lost due to currency fluctuations this last quarter, mm -hmm. it was more money than I think Google made in their last quarter. Wow, Really? Just the amount that they lost in currency fluctuations. Huh. That's insane. Like, there's, it's the only, the only thing I can think of um, to sort of bring home the scale at which Apple operates today, hmm. which is utterly, utterly massive. Yeah. And it does not at all compare to its competition, its putative competition. Microsoft, Google, 
Amazon. Um, these, these are companies that make vastly less money, vastly less money. You know, what does that mean in terms of, you know, how we view Apple in the world? Well, clearly it's a reverse elbow chart. Hmm. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, in a way it is, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, it's Apple up there and everyone else down there. But, you know, the, the funniest thing of all is if you look at that, the money that they're making and you compare it to, say, the, uh, the size of the market that Apple serves, there's still a lot of room for growth. They just opened up China, yeah. and that's actually been, you know, predominantly the large, uh, a huge contributor to this this eighteen billion dollar figure mm. came from China. Right. Um, but there's a lot, there's a lot of headroom still, all over the world for Apple to take. Mm. Uh, it's it's astounding to think that this this is a company that's going to continue to post large numbers. Uh, for the foreseeable future. So you think that the, just to talk about the the um, loss of uh, money because of uh, currency fluctuations, the adjustment that they made to the App Store a couple of weeks ago in terms of pricing, like in in, uh, yeah. in Canada and lots of like in Europe, uh, I've heard some people complaining or not complaining, but sort of commenting on it, if you will. Um, that obviously was 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 costing Apple huge, eh? Yeah, it was. Yes, it did, was. Did they talk about that, or was that any of that any of that kind of um, those losses revealed in the in the, the discussion? Was, that was today? It was announced, right? Wasn't it? Uh, yesterday, yesterday, last night. But okay. um, Ben Thompson, we've already mentioned the strategery. Yeah. Uh, okay. Column. So this, this is a different column uh, on strategery. Mm. Uh, he wrote that currency fluctuations reduced Apple's revenue by five percent. All right. Mm. A cool three point seven three billion dollars. That is more than Google made in profit last quarter. Wow. Apple lost more money to currency fluctuations than Google makes in a quarter. How's your Android looking now? (laughs) Uh, It's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. You can't, I mean, you can't put Apple in the same company as Google and Microsoft. Well, it's a little... little, uh... Uh, no pun intended. A little bit apples to oranges to compare a fluctuation <laughs> in a uh, in a revenue number with a with a profit number. Of course, you're right, but it's it's just a it's a way of saying that um, here's here's a figure that to Apple is actually very very small, right? And that that variance amounts to the lifeblood of a different company altogether. The whole revenues. Or sorry, the profits of another company. Just you know, astounding. It's astounding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's my pick of the week is uh, is Apple and OMG. Look at the size of these guys. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Mm. You know, speaking of size, uh, pun definitely intended. Um, we also <laughs> learned from that quarterly results uh, that the ASP or average selling price of the iPhone went up. So yeah. there's two possibilities. One, either everybody decided to go to 64 gigs and 128 gigs, or the more uh, likely one, everybody and their brother was buying those delicious six pluses that cost $100 more across the board. I bet you it was it was uh, more the former than the latter. I think it was Apple saying, hey, you know, let's, let's do, go entry level at 16 gigabytes so that everybody spends the $100 extra to get the 64. Mm. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Because with that. we we can see, yeah. like I think you know, uh, we've seen the sales mix. I, I don't know that we have it specifically, but the consensus out there suggests that there are way more sixes than six pluses being sold. 
Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, the six plus is yeah. a, a niche kind of, of product. Um, yeah, and it, so it's too. hard to know the manufacturing numbers, but, um, I've had some friends who only recently, you know, within the last week or two received their six pluses and that's because they didn't get wow. on the train when it, you know, left the station in September, you know, they, yep. they unwisely waited around for a month and got caught in the backup. So, oh, so they, they just got it because of, because of slow, slow, uh, um, delivery. Not, oh yeah. Not because like, they were late to the game. Yeah. They were late to the game and just. You know, I don't know. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a backlog or, of orders. If you want to order a six plus today, you're not you're going to be waiting a while for it. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, I don't know if that's still true. Maybe they've gotten through. I don't think that's true through anymore. the batch of of those orders, right. right? Like it's, I don't know. We could try ordering one now. See what happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, but but it was kind of sort of what I was saying a couple of shows ago, three four. I think when it came out was we were talking about the different pricing on the iPads and and the iPhones because the 16 gig just seems so ridiculous. I mean, like you know, we're we're still struggling with 32 gig phones here in this household right um but and it seemed to me like a little bit of trickery like you know you, you want someone to buy the, the 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 medium size or even the large size so you make the you know the the medium so much more attractive you know like like i went and bought an air, ipad air 2 because i couldn't justify not spending the extra money and getting a better product than than a, uh, an ipad mini which is what i would prefer from a size point of view right but you know, just from the from the better chip and the better processors and you know, you know all the other features that are in the iPad Air too, I went with that because to me it was a better deal, right? Um, and the same thing with the iPhone. Uh, the iPhone, when you look at you know, am I going to get a 16 gig or a 64 gig or a 128? Anybody who asks their buddy who knows anything about phones, they'll be told, do not buy a 16 gig, right? Because you're going to be killing yourself. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It's like buying the uh, the medium soda versus the small soda for an extra yeah. dime yeah. when the cup is twice as big. Yeah. But in this case, I think you know Apple made that calculus and decided that they would make more money doing this. But it comes across to me as the biggest dick move they've made in many years. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I hope they reverse it in the next generation. I'm, I'm serious. I, I think that was just the worst. Yeah, well, you know, and, and you're right. It, it it is a pretty cheap shot, and, and it's not something I would have expected from my beloved Apple. You know, especially for sure. But but you're right. It, it did seem like it did seem like they were trying to trying to you know bait fish, right? You know, shooting totally. shooting fish in a barrel, as it were. I guess is the metaphor I should have used. I'm all for differentiation at different price levels, but that that one is just it felt punitive because yeah. the 16 gigabytes is is quantitatively too small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you can still buy an iPad too, right? Like the isn't that still? Well, yeah, you can buy an iPad too. Uh, sorry, no, you can't buy an iPad too, except in education markets. I think. They, oh, okay. Um, uh, but you can buy the iPad Mini, the original iPad Mini. Oh, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, which is another thing that you should never buy, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, terrible thing. Their their product mix on their iPad line right now just blows my mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's uh, it's crazy the the model spread that they have right now, and. There are two things I don't like about it. At first, I don't like the fact that the iPad Mini is still something that you can buy. Mm -hmm. But the iPad Mini 3 um, has very, very little to recommend it over the iPad Mini 2. Well, and that's exactly, and that's the reason why I went to the Air, the Air 2, because, you know, I'm an iPad yeah. Mini client, right? I mean, I love the size, <laughs> but... but they just i just couldn't justify pulling the trigger on that that you know for the for the extra money it cost me to buy the iPad, iPad Air 2 it was a much better deal totally from a features point I, of view and functionality I, yeah. and what, and i think what the M8 chip are we on now and M878 
2695. I don't know. <laughs> it's M8. The M8 I guess you should ask the, the, IC, the, uh, the chip guy over there in the corner. Well, I'm looking at this page right now. Uh, the A8X yes. and the M8 are in the iPad Air 2. Right, right. But everything else is A7, M7. Yeah. Uh, the Air and the Mini 3. Yeah. It's it's just crazy. To me, it just blows my mind that they would do this. Um, so whenever I'm, I'm thinking about buying an iPad, or you know, if someone were to ask me about an iPad, I would say Mini or Air, first question. Right. And if they say Mini, I say get the Mini 2. Mm-hmm. Unless you're burning and dying inside for Touch ID. Well, I mean, that, the again... the reason you'd buy the Mini. Yeah. For me, for me, Touch ID was the only reason I would have bought a, a, mini, a mini 3. But, I, but again, I, it just... Wasn't that good of a good of a product? No, no, no. You know, even if yeah. I could get it in gold, I would sort of want to wait until next year and see what happens. I I really loved how they did it with uh, the lineup last year when the the iPad Air and the Mini Two mm-hmm. uh, were basically the same thing. Just in functionality, exactly, exactly. Function, yeah, yeah, like the specs inside, they were pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. It was, the display is a little better in the Air, but. Other than that, you were just picking the size, mm-hmm. and I thought that was just such an elegant, nice lineup. And then they've screwed it up mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. It sucks. I'm hoping they, they they line that back up again next year. Well, and then and then like you said, they should be shot for for reduce, in, introducing anything that's got 16 gigabytes at this this day Indeed. in the game. Yep. I can't believe they're still selling Macs with four gigs of RAM in them. You know. Well, I don't have a problem with four gigs of RAM. What do you have a problem with four gigs? Of RAM? <laughs> Have you used Xcode lately? Yeah, <laughs> but you know they're not selling. <laughs> not, not everybody's using Xcode, That's right? That's true. Well, yeah, but then there's the Photoshop use people and the you know publishing yeah, but people and whatever. Everybody that needs that stuff will know to get more RAM. But for your average home user with a MacBook Air, mm. four gigs is plenty. It's true, I guess. Okay. I'm not, not, not as exercised about that by any stretch. So that's Aaron's pick for those of you who are yep. following along at home. Um, my pick this week is something I've been using for a couple of weeks now, and I just started really using it full time. And I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it's a product called Pocket. It's an iOS app, and I think it's it may be similar to what the Instapaper, which you use, Aaron. Um, it is. Yeah, it basically it, it's a, a plugin for my for my browser. Um, I'm a subscriber of the John Syracuse Leave the Windows Open on Your Mac as a to-do list school of thought, <laughs> right? I just want to put that out there, John. I'm with you. Um, and when he listens, he'll be sure. Yeah, I'm sure he will. Yeah. Give you a high five yeah, virtually. A, a virtual high five. He'll, he'll give me a star on my – a favorite on my tweet. Um, no so Pocket allows me – because I have a, lot, you know, a couple of different products, projects on the go, and you know, so I want to basically have all these, these – tabs open but there's only so many tabs you can have open i do agree to the other points that the other guys on the atp were making but so pocket allows me to now put these i mean i leave them open because i want the links to be there so when i go back to do that particular task i'm gonna it's available to me but with pocket now at least i can sort of bookmark these things and stick them aside they're not in any i'm not bookmarking them and making them permanent but they're in that pocket uh directory that i can go back to on my mac or on my iphone and basically go back and review the material at my leisure when i get around to it right so you know so that's that's my pick is uh, is pocket have you guys used it or well you use instagram right because i see you tweeting from instagram all the time aaron instapaper you instapaper mean. sorry um, instapaper. instapaper was uh the first product that did this a read later service mm-hmm. uh, so i adopted that one and i i still use it today I, I i love instapaper does it does it actually I, grab the html and put it in the app or does it just give you the link back to the to the site 
it scrapes the page. So uh, when you activate the bookmarklet or whatever mechanism yeah. you're using to store the uh, article, uh, it it parses the page and pulls out a reader friendly view of it. So and, and so like that. is this something like like so can you use it in like an airplane mode? Like if you were to if you were to yeah. grab a bunch yep. of stuff and you get on a plane yep. and you're like you were flying yep. down south a yes. couple weeks ago, right? The answer is absolutely yes. I see. Hmm. So. You know, it's if you're looking to if you're comparing Pocket and Instapaper, mm-hmm. uh, Instapaper no longer owned by Mark Orman, was sold to BetaWorks a couple years ago now, and so is being maintained by a company now that is still actively maintaining the software. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's not free. Instapaper is well, at least at the time that I remember buying it anyway, it was five dollars. Right. But uh, Pocket is free and sort of VC subsidized. Mm. So. I don't know, their, their money-making play is yet to come, I suppose. Yeah, I'll be inundated with ads in any day now, I'm sure. Yeah, it's possible. I don't. I just don't know. <laughs> I like Instapaper because I know exactly how they make their money, and I don't have to worry about that sort of thing. Right. Um, but the differences between them are really, I think, um, management of the things that you've saved, you know, the sort of presentation, and the uh, quality of the, the readability view, if you will, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, the, the view that you're actually reading. Um, and I've tried both, and I, I've ended up going back and sticking with Instapaper. And, right. You know, it, that may not be fair anymore because I'm sure they've both been actively developed over the years. But when last I tried Pocket, I uh, found myself preferring Instapaper's text rendering. Interesting. Hmm. And does, did Pocket in your – I mean, I've only been playing around with it for a couple of weeks now, but did it allow you to, to view things offline necessarily or – Sure. Well, once you save it and then get it into the app, it's it's there in your app, right? It, okay. It, it doesn't require net access, um, unless you, of course, want to see the actual web page yeah. or or follow a link that's inside. Well, of I've it. been using the, the Safari plugin to to pocket the pages, if if you will. You know, I guess that's yeah. a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I guess that's uh, that sums it up for the week. I um, do have one pick, oh, Jim. Okay. So, Mark, do you and, have a pick? And my pick. My pick is that. <laughs> My New England Patriots are going to beat the Seahawks this Sunday. Really? Uh, oh, my goodness. Okay, 31, no. 31 to 28. 31 to 28. Okay, there you go, folks. Oh, wow. In a shootout. Interesting. So yep. what, do you, what do you think, uh, Jaime? Yeah, I'm in a, in a tough quandary here because even though I have lived here in Seattle um, you know, for the past 10 years or so, yeah. um, but I did grow up in Texas, so my Dallas Cowboys, sadly – were yeah. <laughs> unable to to reach the finish line um, as I'd hoped, but uh, man, the the Seahawks defense is just so rough. I I see this being like a seventeen ten game in Seattle's favor. Uh, and do you have a, do you have any skin in this game, uh, Aaron? Not even a little bit. No, no, not really. I was in a playoff pool, but I lost out in the third weekend. So it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I hate to admit that I don't follow football. Um, and so um, yeah, so what's the deal with the inflation? deal with the balls what was the does it make nonsense. it easier to catch Ignore or something it. or no oh, that's it's, mark's it's team is cheating that's that oh it was no, mark's no, no, team no, no, that no. was cheating oh okay yeah, no, right. no, no, no. it might actually be mark <laughs> no it certainly wasn't me uh, no that this was it you know it's always a slow news week in between the uh right between the championship game and the, and the super bowl so sure you know they needed something to talk about spoken and, like uh, a true new england patriots, patriots have a lot of enemies so you're going Patriots, and, and Jaime, you're with the Patriots, or the no, 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 I'm with the Seattle Seahawks on this one. Look, where does he live, man? Well, yeah, but so what? You can. I know people who like the Habs and live in Toronto. You know, so hmm. there you go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those are hockey teams for those of you who don't know. 
Um, okay. Yeah, actually, well, I didn't know, <laughs> to be honest. You what? <laughs> this cross-cultural thing here, where it's like, yeah, I don't really follow football, and then it's like, yeah, I don't really follow hockey. <laughs> hey, come on, the Boston Bruins are awesome. Um, alrighty, so, uh, Aaron, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look for you? Twitter.com slash Aaron Bay. Oh, hey, I, I got a question. Um, did, did, um, uh, Aaron steal your greeting this week, uh, Jaime? No, he did not. I didn't not. do it this week. Oh, he no. didn't. Okay. Okay. I did it last week, though. Yeah, we know. We know. It was sweet. Mm. Well, I just want to point it out because I don't know if anybody really cut, sort of noticed it, but I wanted to make sure our three listeners knew that you had done that. You had scooped him. Uh, Jaime, if people wanted to find you on the They know deep in their heart. Jaime, if people wanted to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? At on Twitter, with the hair. Dev with the hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh! What about his blog, Aaron? <laughs> Devwithair.com. Everyone knows that. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> and uh, Mark, before Aaron jumps in there, where would they find you? MarkArtsMathSoft.com. <laughs> <laughs> And Mark R at smaff.com. Yeah. And where am I, um, Aaron? Yeah, I'll, I'll let you take care of your own contact. All right, thanks. I'm Timitra. I am T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter, and I am also at my blog, it-guy.com, and uh, maybe there'll be a name change in the future. Oh, by the way, um, we're still waiting for people to send us some stuff in for the, the contest, for logo, for a T-shirt. You'll get five minutes of eternal gratitude from all four of us. Um, and I've only got six more sleeps till RW DevCon in Washington, D.C. So if you're out there for that, I'll see you there. And that's it. I guess goodbye. I guess goodbye. Bye. Bye. Okay, bye. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items we talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, or if you can, please write a review on iTunes. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast if you'd like to support us you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc you can provide as little as a dollar amount any amount helps however you're free to do as you please thanks again for listening I think the delay's gone. I might have been on my, my Bluetooth headphones. Is Are you guys still having time? No, it's it, when you change headphones, it got way better. Yeah, it's the same headphones. I just turned off the blue, the uh, Bluetooth crap. Oh, Bluetooth. That explains it. Well, yeah. Who knew? Who knew? Well, actually, I would have I asked. have total faith in Yosemite. I can't believe that, you know, Yosemite would let me down like this, you know? Hmm. Uh, you got to be kidding me. Wait, but did, you, <laughs> okay. did you update, though? Because they, they came out with an update yesterday. Oh, yeah. The you know what? I, I did, yeah. I was wondering if that USB mux thing would go away if uh, if I updated. But I, I, I thought I was supposed to wait a couple more days, Jaime. You know, I, uh, I waited, what, a full day, I think, because last night... I was watching, you know, the comments on Ars Technica. Nobody complained yeah. about it. Yeah. I was like, yeah. all right, I'll go ahead and do it on my work machine. This morning, we're perfectly so fine. So is it 10.10.2? Yeah. Okay. 10, 10, 10, 2, and then uh, on iOS, it's 8.13. 8.13. Okay, cool. And you guys are still recording this part of the conversation. Please tell me yes.
I am. I'm still going. Good. Yep. All righty. All right. Uh, okay, so that's uh, that's it. I'm gonna hit stop now, though. Yeah, that, that's fine. Thank you very much. It's over. All right, hit and okay. stop. Bye bye. Calling it. Okay. <laughs> I really hope we don't talk about Spartan's rendering engine. Yeah, well, they did answer some questions in that uh, that Smashing Magazine article that I I think you were oh. yeah, either you or Aaron posted. Aaron put that up. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron um, posted it. Where the answer to is it new is yes and no. So it's based oh, on it's, Trident, oh, yeah. but it's supposedly removing all of the weirdo cruft and starting with IE11, you know, as a a baseline. Yeah, I have to channel the Star Wars franchise and say I have a bad feeling about this.